Well, good morning. Uh, so with the, the lesson this morning, um, in the car this morning, I was telling Eva that uh, probably the best song that would fit with the introduction to this book of the Bible, Zechariah, would be Sweet Will of God. And uh, John picked that song, uh, which I, I'm so thankful for that. You know, I really think that the, the chorus of that song is one of the most beautiful hymn lyrics uh, that could be sung. Sweet will of God, still fold me closer till I am wholly lost in thee. And that, that really is the anthem of Zechariah. Um, we're going to start this study thinking about why, why studying a book like this is important. Um, but this is a book that I, when we were meeting as we normally would twice on Sundays... I was wanting to teach through Zechariah and begin uh, our book study uh, after Hebrews going through Zechariah, but we didn't really get the chance to do that. So I'll, I'll try, it may not be every Sunday, but I'll try to progressively be working through Zechariah and, and clumping multiple chapters together and trying to get the flow of the book as we teach through it. Um, but as, as I just said, I'd like to spend just a minute. Why study Zechariah? 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17 uh, is hopefully a very familiar passage to all of us where he says, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God uh, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So when it says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable, that means Zechariah as well. And I know that's, that's kind of a given, but for me, I think it's easy to have a biblical bias where these scriptures over here are really the profitable ones. And then these over here that are a little more difficult, you know, it's really not seeming like they're as profitable me for to work with or to understand or wrestle with. And when it says all scriptures inspired by God are profitable, that includes a book like Zechariah. And it's very likely, um, and this is, this is me too, it's likely that Zechariah is a book that we actually know very little about. Uh, and I think that actually makes it more impactful and valuable to learn about. Because then it's like the, the message and the images within the book, because it is a very image-intensive book, those things, I think, can have more of an impact because of how unfamiliar they are. And the lessons can become more amazing because there may be things that, when you read it, being unfamiliar with the, the language or the book itself are so easy to overlook. But I want you to just imagine uh, an illustration Think about the 66 books of the Bible, like different rooms in a house. You know, and this would obviously be like a very large house, but imagine every room in this house is filled with treasure. It's filled with tools that are invaluable, life-changing things, where not just if you used it, if other people had it, it would change their lives forever. Every room in the house. Now imagine, this is, this is a very big house with a lot of rooms, and some people have looked at things in one room maybe a little more than you have, the appeal of Zechariah is at the very least to understand the value of at least being able to hear lessons from Zechariah, even if you haven't done an intensive study yourself, even if you're not going to be reading Zechariah and intensively studying it as we're studying it together, to have the opportunity to be, to be able to hear lessons from Zechariah. It's like going into a room that maybe there's dust on it, you don't really recognize what's in it, but you know that the things within that room are, are unimaginably valuable. Kind of like uh, when, when people take their old things or things they don't know the value of to, to auctions or places where people will evaluate it and give a price and they find out that something that they didn't realize was valuable 
is actually worth a whole lot more than what they thought it was. And I think, again, that's kind of like the book of Zechariah, where it's worth a whole lot more than we may, we may realize. Zechariah is also heavily quoted in the New Testament. Uh, as far as the smaller books of the prophets, you know, there's not quite as many quotations as books like Isaiah. But you may be familiar with these statements. They will look on him whom they have pierced. That's actually a quote from Zechariah. Throw the money to the potters. You remember Judas took the 30 pieces of silver, which is money that Zechariah was actually paid. And that idea of throwing the money to the potters, that's in Zechariah. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's a quote from Zechariah. Behold, your king comes to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. That's a quote from Zechariah. Turn to Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Just to kind of emphasize why these quotes are important for drawing us into the glory of the book. Luke chapter 24, verse 27. For me, there's a few passages in the New Testament that I think really give clarity to how to read the Old Testament in a much more meaningful way and to draw out more value and wisdom from it. This is one of those passages. Luke 24, verses 27. This is Jesus here after he's risen from the dead. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Don't you wish you could have listened in on that conversation? With all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. As much as I wish I could have listened in on that conversation, that narrative insight is an invitation for us. It's an invitation to realize that when we read the Old Testament, we are probably giving too little credit to what's actually there. That when we read the Old Testament, we are probably overlooking some pretty incredible things about Jesus. So you'll see on the board there, we can see, understand, and value the glory of Christ so much more by studying a book like Zechariah. If we can see Jesus through the lens of these images, we have a much clearer view of his glory. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. This is another scripture that for me just gives such a great insight. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Such a, a, a clear insight into the value of how to read the Old Testament more meaningfully, to have much more motivation to read and understand what the Old Testament is pointing to. I'm just going to read the first couple verses here, but it says, As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as, as uh, he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And then it goes on to reveal that they were actually serving us in revealing things that we have inherited. So just like we can see, understand, and value Christ's glory more by studying a book like Zechariah, we can actually see, understand, and value the glory of our salvation in Christ so much more by studying Zechariah. Zechariah is filled. It's, it's bursting at the seams with images, illustrations, parables, and visions of things that are just desperately conveying the glory of the salvation that God would bring through the work they were doing in their time. Glory that we have inherited. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 19 through 22. You know, we're studying Ephesians chapter 4 all year, and we're about to, next month, study about how we're trying to build each other up, we're trying to grow together, 
as a body of Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 2, it mentions that we, in verse 19, are not strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. There are Old Testament events that in very tangible and visceral ways parallel New Testament realities that are not as tangible. So for instance, as an example, Jesus wandered in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Can you think of a time in the Old Testament that paralleled that? Israel as a nation wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And so to Jesus, these events had a very personal parallel. And it's the same for us. Just like the scriptures of the Old Testament teach about the glory of our salvation, we also then, when we look at the Old Testament, we see many parallels, tangible and more more, uh, visceral parallels to things that we as well partake of and do ourselves. So we can see the value of our our work together as as a local church much more as we study a book like Zechariah. And not only that, we're going to get into kind of the, the history surrounding Zechariah and where he was in the history of God's plan. Every culture understands that their history and heritage give them perspective and purpose. Every culture understands this. Think about June 19th. We just had a, a holiday called Juneteenth. And I don't know everything about the holiday, but from what I understand, it's, it's a celebration and remembrance of the freedom and abolishment of slavery in America. And, you know, I heard and saw a lot of things, as you may have, about how there's an anthem, a momentum in that, where what people say is, that's good, but there's still progress to be made from where that began. And so we're still trying to uphold this legacy of work that we see as a good thing. In the same way, as children of God, to those of us who belong to him, this is our family legacy. That as much as we've come from physical families and we have names associated with our heritage, we are associated with the family of God, the heritage of Christ. And so when we're looking at the struggle that the Jews had to overcome in rebuilding the temple, we are reading about our heritage. We're reading about struggles that our family in the past had to overcome so that we could inherit a work that is still continuing, that has momentum. So just as they were rebuilding the temple, now we are a part of building a spiritual temple. We are working on building up the body of Christ. And so all of these things have incredible relevance. The issue is not that Zechariah is irrelevant. The issue is we struggle to see the reality of its relevance simply because of just not being familiar enough with it. So I want to spend the next part of the lesson just What is going on in Zechariah? I want to get into Zechariah not just kind of being overwhelmed by the the uncertainty of knowing what's actually happening and why he's prophesying and what's going on. In Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 in the scripture reading, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah were sent by God to Jerusalem to try to motivate the Jews to rebuild the temple because they had stopped building it. We're going to get more into the direct history of that, but just some brief, some brief things that I think can help to understand Haggai and Zechariah. They were the first two prophets 
that were sent to the Jews who were rebuilding Jerusalem. And then many, many years later, uh, really in an entirely different generation, Malachi is the third and final prophet of the Old Testament period. Zechariah and Haggai prophesied together, and then in uh, a different generation years later, Malachi is the final prophet of the Old Testament period, and then there's 400 years of prophetic silence until the time of John the Baptist, or about 400 years of prophetic silence. Haggai is only two chapters. It's very, very direct. It's only two chapters. Zechariah is 14 chapters. So you have Haggai's message, which is very direct, straight to the point. In the beginning of the book, to paraphrase in so many words, through, through Haggai, God says, what are you guys doing? Think about your ways. Get to work. It's, just, it's a very blunt, very direct message. So you think about him more as the short application preacher. Zechariah takes a lot more time to make his points. He's a little more hard to follow. His illustrations require more mental energy. There's, there's much less direct application in the book of Zechariah, although it is there. And I think usually we would all prefer Haggai's message, right? Just give me the two-chapter sermon. Just give it to me straight and let me move on. Whereas Zechariah is inviting us, well, slow down a little bit. You know, let's, let's really think about things and let's really understand things a lot more. So Zechariah is a little more long-winded, a little more hard to follow, but there is order to the book. We'll talk about more about that in the next lesson in Zechariah, the, the, the order of the book and the, its structure. Another thing is Zechariah begins preaching two months after Haggai begins preaching. This will be significant when we start looking specifically at chapter 1. There's some important points in that, but I've got a timetable here that's important to note. On the left are the literal dates, and we know these pretty well because the exact time frame is actually given in the books. The middle numbers are the years of Darius the king. So it'll say the second year of Darius, the sixth month, the first day of the month, the second year, the sixth month, the 24th day of the month. So you get these clear time markers. Haggai chapter 1 verse 1 is August 29th, year 520 B.C., Haggai chapter 1, 15, after they've begun rebuilding again, September 21st. Haggai chapter 2, verse 1, October 17th. And then Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1, sometime in October or November during uh, a later time in uh, uh, Darius's reign. So Zechariah begins preaching after they have already listened. They're already rebuilding. They've already repented of not, uh, not focusing on the temple like they should have. And I think that will give greater context to the message we see. So why were, why were they rebuilding the temple? And here we're going to get into some, some history. And I'm going to put these verses on the board uh, that we're going to look at to try to look a, little more, uh, look a little more swiftly through this. But Leviticus chapter 26, verses 17 through 39. The book of Leviticus, everything within it, was given to Israel when they were at Mountain Sinai. They had just come out, come out of their Egyptian exodus. They had just become a nation at the foot of the mountain where God was dwelling in fire and smoke. And Israel had just become a nation. And uh, he, in Leviticus 26, I really should turn in my Bible there. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 26, when the nation had just begun, God actually promises them that there will come a day when he will need to scatter them among the nations because of their rebellion against him. Uh, look at uh, chapter 27, or chapter 26, rather. Uh, 
uh, verse 31, I will lay waste your cities as well, and I will make your sanctuaries desolate. I will not smell your soothing aromas. I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you in your land and as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. So you think that's kind of discouraging to hear, but it's a reality that God is preparing the nation to comprehend and to just accept that there will come a day when the nation will need to be completely eradicated and the people will need to be scattered among the nations. This is repeated again to the next generation in the book of Deuteronomy. So if you want to turn to Deuteronomy, we'll look at chapter 30, but Deuteronomy chapter 28 repeats the exact same warnings. But in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 10, Moses to the next generation, they're right on the border of entering Canaan now. This is 40 years later. They're right on the brink of getting into this great land. Chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, he's emphasized the same promises as Leviticus 26. There will come a time when God will have to scatter them among the nations. But I want, I want to read verses 1 through 10 here of chapter 30. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, the offspring of your body and the offspring of your cattle and the offspring of your ground and the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Final note there beneath the quotation on the board. This, this is something you, want, you may want to take note of. Maybe you want to, if you write in your Bible, write it in the book of Zechariah somewhere where the title is. The entire book of Zechariah and I mean the entire book, chapters 1 through chapter 14, the entire book of Zechariah is an exposition of the promises in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. You can literally trace everything that God says through Zechariah back to the words of these promises in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. So, continuing. Why were they rebuilding the temple? God promised he would need to destroy them. Israel was at Sinai at about 1445 B.C. There was no timeline given in Leviticus or Deuteronomy. You have no idea how long this is all going to take. God never promised to send prophets to stop them from turning away from him. He never promised to do miracles to change their hearts. This was a process that took about 860 years of God painstakingly, compassionately, exhausting every possible option 
to reconcile his people, to bless his people, to be patient with them, to forgive them, to give every possible opportunity for repentance, even beyond anything that was within his promises he had made at the beginning. Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 through 16. This is very important to note because it mentions in Romans chapter 3 that the righteousness of God was witnessed by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God we see fulfilled in the cross. And that is the righteousness of God that acts in opposition with patience. 860 years of anger and frustration, 860 years of being abandoned, 860 years of being betrayed continuously by his own people that God loved. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 through 16 says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God arose against his people, until there was no remedy. Those are some of the most powerful words in the Old Testament in its entire history. God worked endlessly until there was absolutely no remedy left anymore. And at that point, there was only one thing he could do anymore. Fulfill the promise of catastrophe and let them suffer the consequence of their sins. God will mention in Zechariah how the fathers of the Jews had treated the prophets as a motivation to get to work and continue. But in the preceding verses, just as in Deuteronomy, God promised, but if you turn to me, I'll bring you back. And it doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't matter how far away you've been scattered, I'll bring you back to the land. And in verses 22 through 23, it mentions that King Cyrus of Persia, the nation preceding Babylon, that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. This is the temple that Jesus would eventually enter into. Herod had done a lot of work uh, adorning the temple, making it glorious and beautiful, but ultimately this is the beginning of the Jerusalem that Jesus would eventually walk into and die in. A new beginning God was making for his people. But as we read in the scripture reading in Ezra chapter 4, there were enemies that desired to hinder the work, and they were aggressive in doing it. Earlier in the chapter, we didn't read in the scripture reading that enemies of the work were already doing all sorts of different things to try to stop or discourage the people, and really nothing was working. And so finally, they end up sending a letter to King Artaxerxes. He investigates, finds that uh, there, were, there was a history in Israel that Jerusalem was an exalted city, that was really the city that was in control of the other nations at times, and that they were rebellious at other times. And so he puts the work to a stop forcefully. But Zechariah and Haggai, before they get permission from the king of Persia, they're motivated by the permission of God, and they honor God as their true king. So the work of the temple begins again about 520 
B.C. So again, such a long period of time and in all the things happening in the world, this is the most significant thing happening in the world in this time. So hopefully that kind of gives you, gives you an idea again of how knowing the history of things that God has done, we realize that this is the history of our family. These are struggles that our fathers had to overcome. We see the value in carrying the anthem of what's been overcome in our generation as well. So finally, Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. We're only going to look at the introduction of the book, and we'll talk more about the structure of the book in the next lesson, and then look at the uh, rest of chapter 1, and uh, hopefully chapter 2 um, in the next lesson. But Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Uh, I'll read it and just make a couple comments related to what we've, we've looked at after, after reading. Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, and again, that's two months after Haggai had started preaching, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord, Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us according with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. So just to kind of put in perspective how strange this can seem. Again, this is two months after the people had already started rebuilding again. So you imagine the people had already changed. God had already strengthened them and stirred them up. Haggai had already told the people from God, the Lord is with you. So imagine you're busy, you're, you're motivated, you're trying to work. And then another prophet comes and says, hey, you know, God was really angry with your fathers. Imagine, you'd be like, what? Like, that's not very motivating. But I think we need to think about why this is so important. Because this was a vital component of continuing to stir, strengthen, and root their hearts down in the truth of their relationship with God. I think the first thing we need to understand it's been almost 1,000 years of the same thing. Inevitably, God needed to destroy the nation because of their rebellion. And that didn't just happen all of a sudden. This was from the very beginning in Ezekiel chapter 20. God reveals through Ezekiel, back in Egypt, before they were even delivered. Through Moses, God told the people, get rid of your idols. And they wouldn't do it. And in Ezekiel chapter 20, God says, I was going to destroy the people in Egypt for that. But he said, I relented because of my name. Israel has a history of rebellion against God and forgetting. Read God, well, point by point here. God hated what he had to do with Israel and never wanted to go through that ever again. He never wanted to go back there again. And the reality is the people withdrawing from continuing the work of the temple they were associating themselves with the wrong side of history again. And the person who's been on the side of being 
hurt by the wrongs of another person, will be much more earnest to not want to go to that place ever again. And so God is not just speaking out of anger here. He's not just trying to whip them around and make them feel guilty. It's God desperately saying, guys, please, we can't go back there ever again. Too much has been done. Too much has been sacrificed. Too much has changed. We can't go back again. And rebuilding a completely broken relationship is more than just beginning to do some things correctly. You know, they couldn't be deceived into thinking, okay, we began to rebuild the temple, everything is good now, and nothing else needs to be done. No, God says, return to me. Rebuilding a broken relationship is more than just doing some things correctly again. It's much more than that. And Israel's history is not appreciating the depth of pain that sin causes. And I believe that's our struggle as well. That our struggle is really just not appreciating. When Jesus was on the cross, our sin hurts God. And we do not experience anything similar to the hurt that Christ endured on the cross by our sin. And when we come to God and we're immersed in water for the remission of our sins when we've repented, although a relationship with God is reconciled, we're really just beginning to rebuild a relationship that has been devastatingly broken by our sin. And again, we can easily begin to go back to exactly where we once were. And Israel had a history that made it very clear how easily we lose our convictions, how easily I forget. Many of you have heard me say this now, but this has really stuck in my mind. I heard another brother say, covenants begin with commitment. Covenants begin with commitment. Think about marriage, for better or for worse, life or death. Covenants begin with commitment, but they are sustained by memory. Covenants begin with commitment. They are sustained by memory. And a covenant is endangered when we begin to forget. Second Peter chapter 1, when he's talking about diligently pursuing growth, he says, if this is not what you're doing, it's because you're, you're short-sighted and blind, having forgotten your purification from your former sins. And so Peter doesn't say, well, you're not doing it because you're just not doing it. You're not doing it because you're just not understanding the importance of doing the right thing. No, he's saying you're not remembering what God has done for you. Verse 3, the thrust of the message here, return to me. And I think it's important that we really think about this. Return to me that I may return to you. Not, let's return to the way things were. They're rebuilding a temple and it's not going to look as good as the one before. And that's going to be a struggle for them. We'll see that. This temple is not going to look anywhere near as glorious as the temple Solomon built. And rebuilding the same temple, practicing the same law, it's not, let's return back to where we were. It's return to God. It's not return to Jerusalem. It's return to God. It's not return to practicing the ordinances of the law. It's return to God. It's not let's return to proper and sound temple worship. It's return to God. And if they would return to God, all of these other things would be done with passion. But if they don't return to God, it all 
loses its meaning. So think about this maybe in a more personal way. The goal is not just to be baptized. The goal is return to God. The goal is not just attend the right church, practicing the correct things. It's return to God. It's not get to a place where you're finally able to live a moral life. Get to a place where you can live in the world reasonably. Get to a place where you're comfortable in your life and financially secure. No, it is return to God. John chapter 17, Jesus did not say, Father, help my disciples to live nice, sound, moral lives. He said, Father, help them to have perfect unity with you, just as I have unity with you. The goal is perfect unity with God. Anything less, and we have missed the point. Do we need to be baptized for the remission of our sins? Absolutely. Do we need to be a part of a church that is practicing sound doctrine? Absolutely. Do we need to live lives free from sin? Absolutely. But all of those things lose their purpose if we're not seeing it all as a way of connecting with God and having unity with his holy, glorious character. So what motivates you in serving God? Really, what what motivates you and are you motivated to serve God? Because here in Zechariah, he wasn't motivating them to the work by the work. He was saying, your motivation needs to be something much more than the work. And that's why Ephesians verses, or chapters 1 through 3 is a big exposition on the glory of salvation and what God has done for us. Because our motivation is not the work itself. Just as in Zechariah, there were hindrances, there was opposition, there were stumbling blocks. And the only way to overcome was not to focus on the work itself, but on the glory of God. Maybe think about this in another way. Here, here are some ways that I think I've thought before while here, and maybe you've thought this way too. It would be more motivating to be active in the church here if there were more people. It would be more motivating if there was maybe more zeal and more knowledge. Maybe it would be more motivating if there were elders in the congregation here and deacons and strong leadership. Maybe it would be more motivating if there wasn't so much diversity in the condition of faith in the congregation and not so many needs in the church. What is our motivation? You see, they needed to be motivated in the middle of the difficulties, not without the difficulties. And one of the most important visions to me is Zechariah chapter 4, where there's two trees and a lampstand, and some oil is coming in. And you imagine the angel of the Lord looking at this like, wow, don't you see it? And Zechariah's like, what am I looking at? And he says, this is the message, not by might, nor by strength, but by my spirit, declares the Lord. Who has despised the day of little things? Because that temple would have more glory. We mustn't despise the day of little things. And we mustn't be demotivated simply because things are not ideal or difficult. Verse 5, your fathers, where are they? Did not my words overtake your fathers? So again, we don't realize how easily we can associate with those God has punished in the past. 
we studied Hebrews recently, and in the book of Hebrews, that's exactly what was happening to the Hebrew Christians there. He tells them, don't you remember Israel in the wilderness when they were on the border of Canaan? They did not enter God's rest because they hardened their hearts when they heard the message of God. And he tells them, you don't realize, you should be teachers by now, but you're children, you're devolving. He says, you're in danger of getting to a place where there's not going to be opportunity for repentance. He tells them, you're in danger of putting the Son of God back into open shame in your life. He tells them, if you go on sinning willfully, you're trampling underfoot the Son of God and counting the blood of the covenant by which you've been sanctified as a common thing. The problem was, in their drifting away, they did not realize how they were associating with those who God had punished in the past. A book like Zechariah will help us to have a clearer perspective of where we are. God teaches us in a way that tests our hearts. We tend to disassociate ourselves while God is trying to associate us very personally with his history. Just as an example, Jesus taught this way in parables. Do you know the best way to learn from parables? To put yourself within the parable. When Jesus told the parable about a man invited to a wedding feast and he chooses the high place, then he's told, get down from there, go to the lowest place, and then another man chooses the lowest place and he's exalted higher. You know the way to learn from that parable is you put yourself in the parable. It's not just a story to be heard like a children's book. And so Jesus was trying to train his disciples, this is about you and your relationship with God. And you don't put yourself in the high position. You put yourself in the low position in the parable. And it motivates you to change. God's history are not just things that happened a long time ago. They are living illustrations. Living illustrations that teach us about how easily we drift away. That teach us about the motivation we need from God. That teach us about the zeal we should have for God. The zeal we should have when things don't look ideal, when things aren't ideal. The history of Israel is a personal and living parable. And they needed to be motivated by the fundamental, the most fundamental component of what it really means to associate with God. Return to him. So where are you? And that's the invitation. We're not just told we need to repent and move on with our lives. We don't just ride the wave of our repentance. What Jesus taught is we must take up our cross daily. We renew our resolve afresh every day. And that is what they were being told they needed to do. So where are you? If there's anything that we can do for you, this is a time where we extend an invitation. If not now, after the assembly, or at any point, if you see that you have a need to return to God, or that you need strength, or if anything needs to be confessed, this is an appropriate time when we stand and sing the invitation song.